been fascinated by talking to creative people, those who think differently, understand uniquely, and see the world in their own way. Now don't get me wrong, I love what creatives produce, but often the story behind the story is what really inspires me, because I want to know where ideas come from, because that's where the magic happens. That's the creative backstory. And welcome to the Creative Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Planer, and I am thrilled today to be speaking with Nick Maley. Nick's Wikipedia page lists him as a makeup artist, but I don't think that that explains him quite well enough. He's an effects specialist who's worked on Yoda, and he's worked on my favorite in the Star Wars series, which are all the, uh, the characters that you find in the cantina scene. He's also had his hands in 53 different films, one of which he wrote, one he got nominated for an Emmy for, and they include Superman, Highlander, and Krull. He's now, I don't like to use the word retired, because Nick doesn't like to use the, reti- the word retired, but we'll talk about that in a bit. And um, I will say it's hard to retire because artists and creators never really stop creating. So these days you'll find Nick most of the time in St. Martin, where he is the gracious host at that Yoda Guys movie exhibit, which is where I met him, and we had a lovely chat. He paints, he draws, he hangs out with all you Comic-Con people. And I don't know if this is true, but he never seems to get tired of talking to his fans, and especially the young kids who maybe don't feel quite like they have a place in the world yet. So welcome, Nick. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for inviting me. All right. So let's start with the retired thing. Tell me about, uh, you know, that you don't like this word. <laughs> no, I, I don't. I think the word retired should be retired. I think it should be picked up and, and, and thrown away because, you know, the whole concept of retiring and looking forward to it is based on the idea that you're going to spend 40 years of your life doing something you really don't want to do um, and just to pay the bills and to then, uh, you know, say, oh, great, I'm going to retire in three years or four years or five years. But, you know, if you love what you do, then you'll always succeed at it. And if you love what you do, well, then retiring is like giving up ice cream. It's just not something that you want to queue up for. So I I think that really at the very best, um, retirement should be seen as a crossroads at a time where you are going to pursue some of those other things that you really haven't had time for so far. Not because you are no longer capable of working and not because you no longer have value at the job that you had before, but because it's something you've always wanted to do and you just didn't have time for it. And I think that it's really important that you have a good reason, whether you are whether you are 26 or whether you are 96. I think it's really important that you have a really good reason to get up in the morning and that you have a goal of things that you need to get done before the sun goes down, um, even if you fail at that. But, uh, you know, and, and some of them roll over till tomorrow. Um, that is what keeps your body moving and that is what keeps your brain working. And that's what keeps you out of the grave. I like that. I like that much more than the idea of 
just stopping working. Like, uh, you know, my husband is just about to that place where he is going to stop doing what he what he has done, but I, I envision a lot more banjo playing in my future. <laughs> so, and there's quite a bit right now. So. Right, cool. So it's good. So I want to talk, As I, I, when I was in your museum, I picked up a copy of your book, Do or Do Not Out, Outlook, 77 Steps to Living an Extraordinary Life. I love this little book, and I hope every creative just runs to their computer right now and goes to Amazon or wherever they buy their books and snags a copy of this because it's a lovely um, – and uh, people who have been listening to the podcast know I love my creative toolkits. I feel like this is a creative toolkit, and it's um, – full of 77 little vignettes and then some other little interesting things toward the end and um, a postscript, which I think we'll, we'll read later. But um, talk about writing this book. And I know this book has a lot to do with your vision of how you feel, how you felt growing up, not quite feeling like you fit in. And, and I know you wrote this book for the kids. So talk about it. Yeah, well, you know, our nonprofit is uh, is not just about you know telling stories about making movies. It's intended as a way of inspiring kids to follow their dreams and to think big and not to give in to everybody's negativity. You know, one of the problems in life um, is that we get to a point in our teens when we have absolutely no experience to base any opinions on, really, <laughs> um, when everybody is pushing us to decide what it is we're going to do for the rest of our lives. Uh, and, and, you know, how, how in the world are you ever going to make that decision if you don't have any information to base it on? So the only information that you generally get is the information that comes from your teachers at school or your family around you or other well-meaning people who um, who think of you still as something of a child and want to encourage you not to be too fanciful. And so they, you know, they say to you, oh, yes, but, you know, you, you couldn't, you, you're not going to be able to do that. You've got to have a backup plan. Oh, yes, but, you know, that's going to be difficult. What you should do is maybe aim a little lower to start off with. Have a practical plan. Well, my idea of a practical plan is to, um, is to really have a step-by-step -step plan on how you get to the stars rather than having a step-by-step -step plan to how you're going to work in a supermarket because you've given up on your idea of being an Olympian. Um, I, I had a, a young girl that came in and I was trying, I was saying to her, believe in yourself and strive for what, you know, for what you really have a passion for. And she burst into tears and said, uh, her teacher had told her when she said she wanted to be an Olympic swimmer, her teacher had told her she needed to have a realistic expectation. Mm. Well, that is stopping someone from, you know, achieving their dreams before they even start. You know, the world is full of people with negative opinions of what you're worth, of what you can do, of what is a realistic expectation. And so they, they, they're talking you down because they're afraid that 
you'll get some fancy idea and you'll go off on a sidetrack and you won't measure up to being normal. Mm -hmm. You know from my book, I start right at the beginning by saying you can't live an extraordinary life by being normal. That's right. Normal, normal is another word for average or standard or ordinary. So why in the world would you look at someone who's normal and take their advice? Exactly. I mean, honestly, if you want to take someone's advice, look at, you know, someone gives you advice, look at the life they are living. And if they are living the life that you want to live, well, then fine, take their advice. But if you don't want to live their life, why would you take their advice, which has led them to live the life that they are living? It's a, it, it, there's a lot of logic that flows through the thing, very simple, basic logic and things that no one really talks about and the book came about because and i think you were leading that way earlier on the book came about because of what you know people come in they ask me a lot of questions um largely of course because i worked on movies but they know that i've done a lot of other stuff too yes i'm i'm an author i'm a painter i write music with a band in idaho um <laughs> You know, I've, I've been, know a, <laughs> yeah, I've been a screenwriter. I've been a storyboarder. I've been the director of second unit. You know, there is no reason to put yourself in a box that limits your life. And, and that box might be your profession. You know, I, 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 people look at me very strangely when I say this, but I say, if you have a, a degree in engineering, don't call yourself an engineer. Say, I've got a, a degree in engineering. Because if you put yourself in the engineering box, then you limit yourself from being a poet. Truth. And whatever else. And really, um, you build on the experience you have. But if you can evolve through life, if you can keep on developing and growing as a human being into into new spheres and new experiences, well, coming back to who the hell would want to retire from that, right? People want to <laughs> retire because they're doing the same thing over and over and over again just so that they can pay the bills. And if you have a passion for what you do, yeah, it's going to be tough. It's going to be difficult. It might take you 10 years. But then you spend the next 40 years doing being happy to go to work every day yeah. actually never never looking at your watch to say is it five o'clock you know i'm going to be going home soon you look at your watch and go oh gosh it's 11 o'clock i guess i should have phoned my wife and said i'm going to be late <laughs> toward the end of the book you talk about your dad and that he was an actor and yeah that you said he was always happy but he didn't quite get the roles that maybe would have made your life more comfortable. Do you want to talk about him a little bit? Sure, yeah. I, I mean, I love my dad dearly. He was a, a definitely a creative influence on what I did and, and, and you know, helped me along the way. Um, he, he never got to see me be a success, but that was a, that's, another, that's another element. Um, he probably knew but, 
<laughs> he probably knew <laughs> you though, didn't he? Well, I don't know. I don't know. Um, you know, he got very sick, and um, yeah. the last conversation I had with him, um, I didn't realize he was dying. So this is not going to be a good conversation. Oh, I'm sorry goodness. for this, but okay. I didn't. I didn't realize that he was dying. Um, my mother never told me that he was dying. Um, mm. She she didn't trust me with that information, I guess. And so uh, I I was I went home. I was I saw him. He was clearly very very skinny and and in in very bad shape. Um, and and one of the things he said to me was, uh, you know, you've been trying to make this makeup thing work now for five years, and it's not you're you're in, but you're not really making a living. Maybe you need to just think about whether or not there's something else that you could be doing. Ah, that was that was something he said to me, and I went I went from there. I went across the road where the doctor was doctor was literally across the road from us and i went to see the doctor to say why isn't he getting better this is something this has been two years and you know he's getting this treatment and whatever and the doctor thought that i knew that he was dying and so the doctor said to me well he's going to be dead in the next two weeks just kind of matter of factly just sort of like that and so um, as you might expect, I was kind of upset. So I, I went away and I cried for, I cried for two days and then I came back and he died about 30 minutes before that. You know, there are things in life that, um, that affect us. I think one of the, uh, one of the issues here too is, you know, you, you've got to, as a, as an artist, you're talking about an artist handbook. Artists, if they are going to be any good at anything, have to have a sense of sensitivity. They have to be sensitive to the world around them. They have to be sensitive to the emotions. Otherwise, they don't have anything to say. Well, it's it's their job to interpret that for... To interpret those things and to experience those things. If sure. you don't have experience, you don't have anything to say. And so, uh, you know, I... I my emotions are always pretty damn close to the surface, and so yeah, I'm I'm not a, I'm not ashamed to say I went away and cried for two days. I mean, it yeah. was well, that was that was course. rough. Um, and there are things that affect us as artists. We're sensitive people. That we we are affected by by unkind things that people say. We're affected by things in life that that cause us to have um, emotional reactions. That's all part of the tapestry of being an artist. Yeah. And you just have to get used to that because without that sensitivity, you can't write books that people want to read and you can't write poems that have any sense of real um, uh, you know, real poetry. I mean, poetry in the sense of of um, 
uh, something that touches your soul rather than something that describes how to take a lawnmower apart. Um, <laughs> you, you know, you, um, you, you can't paint a picture without having an opinion and without feeling something about the colors that you're using and the other stuff. Yeah. Um, and yet at the same time, it's very easy to get depressed, to get discouraged uh, along this very rocky road that we have to take before we reach a point where people say, can I have your autograph? <laughs> True. The artists are, are just the people who, I want to say explain, they, you know, when I read something really good, like I remember um, Anne Lamott wrote something and it was something, it was like a sentence, but it just hit me. She says, I'm crazy and I am not. And, I, you know, it sort of, gave me a lot to think about for a long time because I feel like that. And the fact that she was writing that made me feel okay and part of something. Yeah. You know. Well, one of the things in the book is to talk about feeling that it's okay to be different. Yes. That's a critical thing that I talk about in the book. You know, I say um, the world is changed by people who are different, not people who are the same. People are the same. They're going to they're going to accept the status quo, and they do what other people are doing, and they fit in with society and everything else. But the people who make their mark, you you, you know, they aren't the one. I mean, you can't say that Albert Einstein was normal. You you know, you can't say that any great leader was normal. You can't say that any actor is normal or or, or any of those things. And it's okay to be different. One of the uh, one of the types of convention that I do, a convention for families that have handicapped kids. Um, because the book that I wrote to encourage people to strive for for that an impossible dream that is going to make your life extraordinary um, is also has this underlying theme in it about, you know, don't worry about other people's opinions yeah. because those are normal opinions that, you know, and that works really for families um and people with autism and Down syndrome and, and various other things who not only, you know, the, the, the children have to deal with being different and thinking different, and the family have to deal with being a family that is looked on in a, in a fairly negative way by the other people in the supermarket when the kids aren't behaving the way that they think they ought to be behaving. And so one of the issues, the issue I'm coming down to here is, so you're different. So what? That just means you've got something to say. That just means that you look at the world from a different point of view and those are the people who have something to say. Those are the people who changed the world. Yeah. And I remember, you know, I was a creative kid and I didn't feel, I didn't feel real out of place until I got to school. And I noticed that I didn't think like everyone, I didn't think anything of it. I thought like a thought until I realized, until I watched other things happening and I'm like, Oh, I don't fit in that way. You know? So it's just interesting that, you know, then you just have to 
learn to well i think in i think in the book i say you know the world is changed by the weird kid in the corner that never gets picked for basketball or or or, or whatever it is you know um the one that's not really the team player the nerds of the world um just just think about uh the people who started apple and uh, microsoft you can tell they were the nerdy kids that were sitting in the corner not the ones that were that were the leader of the prom. Do you feel like you were the nerdy kid when you were starting, you know, to figure out what you I was? Liked? No, I was the entertainment kid. I was never really that technical <laughs> as a kid. Um, you know, I'm a lot more technical now dealing with, because I've got more experience. So, sure. you know, I'm comfortable with the computer. I'm comfortable with a, a cinema camera or uh, which these days is all digital and and uh, you know, sound recordings. That's when I'm packing a lot of stuff up to go. We're going to be filming a starting a film documentary. I think this uh, not this weekend, but the the next weekend. And so um, you know, you've it, 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 I'm pretty good with technical stuff, but um, but when I was young, you know, I. I thought I'd be a comedian. So, you know, <laughs> what was the point of going to school? I already knew all the jokes, right? Right. Um, you know, as, as, I, as I say in the book, I, I had learning uh, disabilities. I was dyslexic, so I kept on failing my English exams, mm-hmm. even though I had my, my, my essays were no, notorious. Um, because they were so unusual um, and original that, you know, the English teacher would pass out the, you know, you've written your pages and he's put a number on it and he, he would go, Brown needs more imagination. Smith needs more imagination. Maley, for God's sake, let's have less imagination. <laughs> If we could just turn it off like that, if we only could. <laughs> yes, it's not really quite. That's really not how it works. No. But I, I felt I had, I had a sense of competition with my form teacher. He was my English teacher. And um, even though, you know, no one recognized 60-odd years ago um, dyslexia, it wasn't, even, it wasn't even something on the, on the horizon. Oh, yeah. um, I was just a kid who couldn't spell, right? I, and so I, every time I took my English uh, exam, I would always fail because I couldn't spell. And, um, and, and I, I, there's no doubt in my mind that I also had attention deficit. There were times sitting there being forced to read something I had no interest in or sitting there listening to someone telling me how I ought to write something. I had a couple of really bad English literature teachers who would say, well, this is how you're going to pass this exam, write this down, and this is what this book means. And rather than allowing you to use your brain and talk about what that book means to you. And... um, it was, uh, it, it was, uh, uh, I, I'm, you know, people say that your school years are the best years of your life. I, I'm sure they were the worst years of my life. Mine too. Um, yeah. 
Sure. I really didn't like being at school. I really didn't like, uh, you know, the process. I really didn't like fitting in. I was much happier when I went to college where they, where I had a little more control over what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that, that people say that because it's traditional wisdom to work hard at school, to get a good job that is going to pay the bills while you work for 40 years doing a job that you don't want to do and look forward to retiring. <laughs> Which we've discussed. <laughs> yes. And so it's nice when the conversation comes back around to know, where you it's were It's a beautiful before. thing. Um, so I have, some, I have a couple of, of Star Wars questions because I know the people listening, uh, the people I've... T- told I was talking to you they're very interested so they they sent me some some things tell me about you know you're a makeup artist but then you ended up building Yoda's head and hands and feet and talk about how that all came about okay um once again you know it's a it's a I talked about life being an evolution and um And that really kind of started out. I could spend some time telling you about how I got into movies, but hey, I got to leave them something to read the book for, right? Um, And so, uh, you know, okay, (laughs) in my own way, (laughs) my little (laughs) tiny way. (laughs) Okay, Um, but we we got to the point where I was making movies. Um, I was basically stalking people to try and get more work. You did say look for the guy with the back key, the back gate key. Look for the guy with the key to the back <laughs> gate. It. Never never join the queue to the front gate because if there's a queue to the front gate, if it's obvious to you, it's obvious to everybody else. And someone's employed to stand at the front gate and send you away after you've stood in a queue, right? right. Always l- look for the guy with the key to the back gate and offer to carry his bag. I met a girl years ago who was a walk-on. She was a theater major, and she wanted to be on the basketball team at her college. So she she walks on, and she gets on the team, but they're not thrilled. So the first thing she does is make friends with the janitor at the gym because she needs someone who can let her in after hours so she can practice her shots, you know. Same thing. Right. Yeah. It's pretty yeah. smart. Smart. Yes, it is. Think sideways. You know, that's that's a critical thing. But getting back to your to your to your question, um, I, I I think it's I think I, it's partly because I made a merit out of attention deficit um instead of you know just drifting off in various directions you know i started making movies i was a makeup artist making pretty people look prettier well that pretty soon gets boring um yeah you can make a living at it and it's not very challenging and it doesn't break your brains and you get to go home and you know pretty much as soon as they wrap um but I had I had previously been working in in uh, in theatrical makeup, where you're trying to project. It's quite different because you're trying to project a personality 
through the physiognomy that you paint on a face, uh, you know, 300 feet into an audience. You're trying to say, this is a grumpy guy. You're trying to say, this is a kindly person. And you do it by recognizing what shapes in a person's face represent those particular emotions. And so I, they, and, and in movies, they really don't do that. Um, what they do is they, they, you know, they cast someone who looks right for the part rather than saying, let's take someone and can we make this guy look sad? You know? So I started to specialize in toning down that theatrical um, principle so that I could apply it to creating characters. And, and I would, you know, I'd be working on the crowd because I was a new guy. And I would create, I would get them out. You, you, you knock them out in the morning to get them on set on time. And then rather than sitting around all day, I would just keep pulling my people out and turning them into real interesting looking characters. You know, but you don't just say, oh, this guy's a gardener. He's, you know, he's, and put he's wearing gardener's clothes. You say, oh, yeah, but he smokes too much, and he's got nicotine stains on his hands, and he's got nicotine stains on one side of his beard, and, uh, and you know, he, his hair's around all over the place because he's out in nature and the wind blows, whatever it is, something that really tells more of a story. And that really led me to wanting to do um, – things that uh, that are now termed as prosthetics mm-hmm. to be able to physically change someone's face rather than just doing it two-dimensionally but I love- and so go ahead yeah and so that evolution was taking place because i was bored doing the other thing um being do, working on prosthetics meant that I had to learn to sculpt and it meant that I had to learn to be a mold maker and it meant that I had to learn how to balance the chemistry of uh, the prosthetics material so that I could get in in the mold and 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 get it out and I had to be something of cosmetician to make sure that the people whose faces I glued these to didn't break out in spots and I had to be an artist to be able to paint them and often I'd have to punch hair into them so I'd have to be a hairdresser as well so that's a whole new range of skills that I needed to learn and that kept me occupied for a while and and, you and said then something really interesting in the book you talked about how you sort of became an archivist you said you know keep a journal and you wrote down all your formulas and and you're the exact kind of 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 uh, collector of written material as I am the opposite of cook because I will walk to my refrigerator I call it fridge stew. You know, whatever's in the fridge just uh-huh. goes into the pot. And my husband's yeah. like, that's great. Can you make it again? I'm like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot. But you knew. Like, I loved that 
you wrote about. Well, the, yeah, I I needed to write things down because I knew that I wouldn't remember how I yeah. did it next time, and so I there were various things that I, that you know, and and also I like the idea of developing new things. You approach and wait because what you're doing is something you haven't done before. You approach a new problem. In those days, there was no internet to go. Oh, let me just see if I can research how do I make something to fill this torn bit of rubber so that I can make it look okay for for filming tomorrow, you know? You sit down and you go, well, I guess if I took a bit of this and I mixed it with that, that, oh, yeah, that doesn't look that good. I mean, it needs to be more elastic. Let me put something else in. You know, you're experimenting with these things all the time. You're always inventing something new. And, And the prosthetics... Uh, the skills that I needed for prosthetics led us to people in suits, which is what the creatures for the Mos Eisley Cantina were largely. Right. And then, and then that led us towards puppets. Well, actually, the people in suits m- were masks, and so they didn't move. Prosthetics, when you glue them to a face, they'll move because right. the face moves underneath. But um, but it doesn't work like that when you 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 know you make a gorilla mask. It's a gorilla mask. It doesn't change expression, and so. Uh, then we started to make little mechanisms to make that work, and that led to puppets, and lo and behold, that led to Yoda. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I think what you just said about the, the planes of the face and the shapes and the angles to make him look a certain way, what kind of information did you have about Yoda, and what, how, did you, how did you interpret that while you were making these face sculpts? Well, I, I have to tell you, I'm not the only person who worked on sculpt on Yoda. Or, so or I always I always try to example. say to people, I always try to, to say to people when they come in, you know, there was a team of us that were involved in building Yoda. I am the only person who worked on all four versions for Empire Strikes Back, and I did mm-hmm. devise two of them. Um, but uh, my boss, Stuart, was the mastermind behind all the creatures for, for Star Wars, and he is the person who sculpted Yoda, and he did a brilliant sculpt, I think. But it was very slow. Um, I, but to answer your question, um, there were a whole... When we did the creatures for the first movie, there was virtually no drawings that I saw. I mean, maybe there were some out there I've seen drawings since, but I don't remember seeing them when there were six of us sitting in a little room, you know, making stuff. Uh, when we got to the second one, there were drawings of uh, the Wampa, the Tonton, and Yoda. And they had gone through a whole range between the movies, a whole range of drawings to end up with what they thought was the final design. And they gave that to Stu, and Stu, I don't think he really enjoyed you know doing someone else's design any more than i do um but uh he sculpted it up and they looked at it and it didn't look wise and it didn't look um friendly and it didn't look you know that it didn't seem to represent the character that was written in the script and it was alien uh but it looked kind of mean uh, you know, the eyes were kind of half closed, which made it look a bit snidey. And 
it, it just didn't look right. And so he kept on sculpting and changing and sculpting and then waiting for them to come look at it again and then doing it again and then doing it again. And ultimately, eventually, um, he, you know, we, we, he'd been doing it for four and a half months and we were running out of time. You know, this is the world's first animatronic superstar. No one had ever put a puppet as a main character in a motion picture before and, um, you know, a live motion picture before. Uh, and so you were supposed to believe he was a character, not think of him as a Muppet. And, you know, the Muppets were working towards animatronics, too, at the same time. Um, not that we, any of us knew about it at, at, until we started to collaborate with them. But they, um, you know, a Muppet was a, was a foam character with static eyes and a mouth that flapped open and closed. It had personality, but personality of the performer, um, but very cartoonish and um, you know, we, we were trying to make something with the eyes going left and right and up and down and an eyelid and a hand and the puppet's hand had to move through the middle of the, of the mechanism to get to the eyebrows. We had, we didn't know how we were going to do it. And we we're spending all our time messing about deciding, you know, cause a lot of this is trial and error and, and making a movie isn't like making a model of a automobile where you would sit down and you do a design and you would start to build a prototype and you find out what was wrong with it. And if you needed more time, well, it'll come out a year later and you know, it'll be whatever a movie. The moment you sign that contract, you know that on a particular day in the not too distant future, uh, you know, they will have rented the soundstage. They will have be paying the actors. They will have made the set. They will have made the props. And your stuff's got to be there at 8 o'clock that morning, come hell or high water. And sometimes you take on a job and you've only got, I think the worst was three weeks. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, Empire Strikes Back was the longest at 10 months. Um, but they, you know, they used up four and a half months, 10 months, including filming. It was about eight months for the build. And they used up four and a half months of it just deciding what Yoda was going to look like. Wow. And, 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 we, and no one was, still no one was really happy. And in the last two weeks, Stu had a picture on the wall. He was thinking about what, personalities do you subliminally think of as being wise and so for him and his generation that was Albert Einstein and Gandhi the sense of ethereal wisdom of Gandhi so the basic overall head shape is very Gandhi-esque uh, and the white hair and the smiling eyes and the big upper lip he took that big upper lip was to represent um, Einstein's big floppy moustache. And then, <laughs> and then he added the lumps and bumps of his own face at the bottom and the elements, the domed head and the pointy ears of the original design. So, yeah, so that was, um, you know, that was the nature of that. And then we were all 
really in a panic to try and make the the rest of the parts because it's not you know it's not just saying oh we've got the mechanical parts or we've got the sculpt you've got all the individual bits in between to make the molds yeah so one of the most one of the most nerve-wracking things it doesn't sound like something for an artist um but the mold maker has to interpret the sculpt he's got to he's got to figure out how he's gonna make that mold and get it right in one shot because the mold destroys the sculpt that they just spent five months making Mm -hmm. so you know, you don't want to rush into it, but at the same time, you're in a hurry. Right. And so, yeah. you know, it, 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 there's those elements. Then you've got to make the individual parts. Then you've got to put them together before you even have a, a skull shape that you can start to build the mechanism into. Yeah. So do you think it was the deadline that makes Yoda what he is? If there was more time, would he have looked different? <laughs> he might have done. Um <laughs> But, uh, no, I, I think there are times when the deadline determines what something ultimately is. Um, oh, I've, had, sure I've, had that, I've had that happen. I, I, on Kroll, um, someone else was making the Slayers, and they were a disaster. And they, are, they told me the movie was going to fold in 10 days if we couldn't storm the castle on the first day of filming. And so we built uh, 40 slayers in 10 days. Uh, And they weren't what I would have liked them to be. Uh, Everybody seems to like them, but I, I, I still look at them and say, yeah, stuntman in a suit. It just, you know, that really doesn't work for me, but, um, you know, the deadline is what determined what they would look like. Truth. And, you know, you bring up an interesting point because I think as creatives, we all have our ideas of what things should be. And then either time or you just get outvoted or, or whatever, you know, was it disappointing or do you just kind of shrug your shoulders and say they're happy and like your client kind of dictates what's good? Yeah. Um in that particular case, I was just glad that we hit the, hit the deadline and that uh, no one said they look like stuntmen in suits. Um, I was the only one, you know, saying that to myself, I think. Um, there are always, there else. are always things. <laughs> no, you don't. There were always things that, um, that didn't measure up to what it was that I that I was trying to achieve. Who is your favorite? I think think almost all the time that happens. You know, one of the things that's not in the book, but I say that um, making movies is a compromise that doesn't satisfy any of the participants. Yeah. I think Paul Schrader. Because the, the, you know, the, 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 uh, the producer knows he could have made a better movie if he'd chosen a better director or <laughs> or whatever. And the director knows that he would have made a better movie if the producer had just listened to him and given him that extra half a million. And, uh, you know, the, the 
all that you know he would have been he'd have made a much better movie if he hadn't had to work with that stupid makeup guy nick maley uh, <laughs> and nick maley goes i i could have made this so much easier if i hadn't had to work with that crazy director it, it's always a compromise but what finally comes out is the uh, you know is the um the mystery of the story the drama that you're making uh, and so uh, if the drama works, well, then it's okay. And the guy in the cinema, he never knows what it was that was in your mind that you didn't manage to achieve. Uh, I, I, always, I always have this plan, and this is for people who are creative but aren't just creating something for their own satisfaction, have to satisfy a client of some sort. Um, I always had a basic principle, um, you, you, you do build on what you've done in the past in so much that you know that that is safe and that is stuff that you can do. And you always strive to achieve something that is bigger and better than anything you've ever done before because that is what's going to build your reputation and carry you on to greater things. But I would think to myself, okay, so this, this level of what I've done before, that's safe. And my imagination says, wouldn't it be great if we just took that a step further and did, let's say, W, X, Y, and Z. And so that's what I'm aiming for. And I sit down with the director or the client and I say, I think that we can do better than what we've done before. And we could go to X and Y. Mm -hmm. I never tell them about Z. I just keep that to myself because anything that I do that goes beyond X and Y, they're really happy, even though I might be 15% short of what I was trying to reach. Right. Um, oh, and geez. that way, that way people have more, people love you for it. They think, oh, he's a great guy. It's, you know, he said he was going to do so-and-so and he gave me something even better. I also like about collaborating that, you know, I think Paul Schrader said that film isn't an art. It's a chance to collaborate on a work of art. And I find that a challenge as a creative, but when it's working, it's amazing. Yeah, but I think that's part and parcel of, um, uh, of what I was saying about, yeah. about it never satisfying everybody the guy who made that's i'm relating the creature suits etc the guy who made the creature suit um realizes that it would have done so much more than the cinematographer realized when he filmed it and it didn't get you didn't never got to see all the things all the wonderful things that, that you know you'd created on screen so and the cinematographer you know he doesn't understand he wasn't in the workshop while you were building it he doesn't know necessarily how it was that's why i say i think my best work without a shadow of doubt is in an everyday story about self-sucking vampires from outer space called uh, life force where which wasn't a well-received movie at the time but you know i in in that i was able to 
rewrite the sequences with uh, Dan O'Bannon. Um, I wrote five different sequences into that movie. Um, work on the storyboarding of it, and I had my own unit to actually film it the way that I that I knew I I built it for. So, you know, we get the maximum impact. Um, you know, the only thing was I then sat there and said, oh, yeah, I should have been with the editor and helped him understand how that was supposed to go together. Uh, it's always something. Yeah. <laughs> I always said I, I did a lot of video production early in my career, and I always said my my editors who knew how to shoot were my best editors because they kind of got that kind of thing. But I'm sorry that didn't work out the way you, you thought. Oh, it did in a lot of ways. Yeah. It just um, it, 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 it just could have been better, that's all. Yeah. And yeah. I, think, I think everything I've done that I've, you know, time has passed. I, I always think most of my stuff that I finished could be better. But it's, cause I'm, it's because I'm on to something else, you know. But mm-hmm. That's just how I think. But So let's get back to some of these. Fantastic. I can't get go over all of Nick's 77 steps to living an extraordinary life. But what I like is that you've taken creativity and brought it down to where the rubber meets the road. So you say things like work within your budget and let simplicity be the basis of your genius. You can't soar if you're holding others down, which I love because I always catch myself when I when I get that little negative and I just want to, you know, nail. Yeah. And I'm just like, eh, it's not helping. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? Um, right. And you also say some, some interesting things that money fuels your life, but you only need to get enough of it to go where you want to go. Mm-hmm. I like that because it kind of takes a lot of pressure off and you just, you know, well, I, you know, uh, we are, we are, we live in a very materialistic world where everybody tends to judge other people by the size of their house or the size of their car or the size of their bank account. That is what success is generally interpreted to be. But, you know, the, the guy who owns the skyscraper, who's eaten up with envy because he doesn't own the skyscraper next door, isn't actually a success. The guy who's a success is the guy who has the maximum amount of satisfaction. If you can be satisfied with less, then you're the success because your life is everything that you want it to be. And I was was lucky in in some ways. I went from being a, a kid in what was the equivalent of the project in the States, low-income housing, um, to, you know, I walked to school every day because I didn't want to spend the the three cents on the bus fare. I, I thought, you know, I, it, it was a waste of, you know, too much money. And so I'd walk to school every day so I could maybe buy some sweets on the way home. And... Uh, uh, you know, I thought the guy across the road was a big success because he he had a secondhand car. You know, this was this was this was the measure of it, uh, and 
And so maybe that teacher who told me I was going to work in a factory, he looks at where I'm coming from and all of those things and makes a judgment call. Uh, you know, that classic, you know, judging a book by its cover. In fact, judging a book by the library that I was in. And, uh, and ultimately, I got to a point where I bought a Lotus Esprit Turbo because my Ferrari wouldn't go faster than 140 miles an hour. Okay. And, I, <laughs> and I realized, I realized what a crock of nonsense <laughs> all of that was. I'd reached a point where I owned a 400-year-old coach house. Um, love, I loved that house. Um, but it always needed maintenance. My Ferrari, I you got, got this Ferrari. Everybody goes, oh, look, it's a Ferrari. They turn their head. You know, the Lotus Esprit Turbo pulls up outside the, you know, the, the studio and everybody stops to look at it, right? Yeah, that seems good for your ego until you get out of the car and you see the look of disappointment on their faces and go, oh, there's this little furry, hairy guy got out of it. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know? I, you know, I looked even uglier next to a beautiful car. Um, we, we, that the, the house was something that needed to be maintained. The Ferrari had eight carburetors. It required to go to a specialist to tune it four times a year uh, at, at, at a phenomenal price. And, you know, the, the place to tune it was 300 miles away. Right. Um, you're working to maintain your stuff. Yep. And so you have to understand that when you follow that, 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 that course of action, you don't own that stuff. That stuff owns you. That's absolutely right. Sure. And so that is the essence of why I, why I say, you know, the things that I say about that. You know, you, you, you have a Ferrari, you've got to pay someone to, to watch it while you get out of it and go somewhere because somebody doesn't like the fact that you've got a Ferrari and they don't. They run their keys down the side of it and it costs a small fortune to redo the paint job because it's a Ferrari, right? I got to tell you, I love my, I have a 2008 Honda Accord and I love it. I'm going to be, I, it's just going to be my coffin. Like someday it's going to stop running and they could just bury me in it. That's fine. I love that car. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've got two cars now. One of them is a Honda. I, I like it for a number of different reasons. Yeah, yeah. And in St. Martin, you know, I don't want to drive there. You can drive in St. Martin. <laughs> well, when you, Martin was if you, if you want to, if you, <laughs> If you want to drive with me, I'll show you what it was like to drive a Ferrari, only in St. Martin. Oh, see everything in its place. See, I could learn yeah. this. Yeah, you I know, you, it's no point. There is no point. There's no point in having a Ferrari in St. Martin because there are no roads where no. you could get up to that kind of speed. But I'm going to tell you that you can you, you smaller car, less power, same roads, you can still feel like you're uh, on a racetrack. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, 
That's good. That's a, it's a good lesson in being happy where you're at. And I want to take a couple of minutes because I want you to talk about your painting and your artwork and, and what your life is like now, um, the things that you're doing now in this. Well, I'm still, I'm, you know, I'm still evolving. Um, I, I intend to keep evolving into my nineties. Um, and so I'm always striving for that next evolution. And so consequently, I tend never to take things easily, um, even though I'm here in the Caribbean. And why am I here? I'm, I guess I'm here because I thought, you know, taking it easy would be good. I mean, I, I, I came to the Caribbean. I bought a boat because it was a simple solution to getting around the Caribbean uh, without paying for a hotel. Um, the only problem was I couldn't sail. I had to learn that. But, hey, if I can build Yoda, I can read a book about sailing and get from A to B. So that's so what too. I did. And I was fortunate I didn't drown my wife. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there, there were times that got a little hairy, but that was okay. Um, that was another life experience. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You said in your book to choose the right partner, so you don't want to get rid of her. <laughs> oh, no, I'm not going to get rid of her. No, no. No, I can't do that. You know, she's been around too long. She knows all my secrets. So, you know, I can't, I can't, you know, I can't get rid of her. You can't, you can't. No. So, yeah. um, Yeah. When I say choose the right partner, though, you know, just don't choose someone whose attitudes are so um, opposite to the creative thing that they just can't understand it. And so you're always chafing on each other. Right. Uh, I I need to write a book about relationships as well. I, I, I feel I could do that. But one of the things that I that I say there is good relationships are based largely on supporting each other's insanity. Mm-hmm. I like it. It's true. There's a lot of banjo insanity in my house. <laughs> yeah. Cool. And if you ever get, you know, to Emmaus way, we'll, we'll have you for dinner and we can, you know, we can listen to the banjo. Music. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So talk about your painting now. My painting, well, you know, I, 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 when I was a kid, I saw this film about Van Gogh, and I thought it would be nice to be an artist as long as I didn't have to cut my ear off or die of an antisocial disease. Easy. The only problem was, <laughs> the, the only problem with that was that, you know, I didn't really know how to paint. Um, but I, I, you know, I could draw as good as any other twelve-year-old. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I thought later on when I was struggling as a makeup artist and had time to be at home honing my skills, and I'd gone through the the obvious stuff of being able to be better at laying beards and and you know dressing stuff and and color tones and all of that stuff i just thought i'd be a better makeup artist if i was a better artist and i started to focus on on drawing people because people i'm a makeup artist i work on people it's about character and so i would try to capture personality 
on canvas. That was the core essence. Mm -hmm. And I I had been working for um, a television company and there was an industrial dispute. I couldn't go to work. And so I spent six months um, doing nothing but every day, again, setting yourself a goal. You know, you set a rule for yourself that's going to, you don't say, oh, I'd like to think about maybe doing a bit of that. You know, I set myself a course. I I told myself that I had to draw four portraits a day. And I could only, I had to limit them to an hour and a half. Because what I wanted was to get to the essence of what is a personality, mm-hmm. not get so caught up on the texture of the hair or get so caught up on on any detail. Mm-hmm. What is the what is the thing that really represents the personality of that person? And so after six hours, I would have these three portrait four portraits. Sometimes I've had lunch as well, so it might be seven hours. And then I would tell myself that I could finish any one of them, whichever one I I thought would be good. And I went from really not being able to draw any better than than, than the postman um, to being good enough to be asked to do an exhibition in six months. Wow. And, you know, I say in the book, you know, the essence of of um, of being able to get better and better. One of the most important elements is to be able to recognize what you could have done better, what you've done that isn't good enough. You can look at it. If you look at it and say, wow, I did that. I'm going to hang it on the wall then you're never going to progress any further than that. Mm-hmm. You've got to be able to look in and say, well, everybody else thinks it's wonderful, but you know what? The mouse isn't quite right. I should have just maybe next time if I do. That's how you get a bit better and a bit better and a bit better until eventually people say, wow, you are so talented. And I say, it's not actually talent. It's perseverance. I remember watching a musician one day and a tremendous guitar player and he stopped in the middle of his song. He goes, a lot of people ask how I got so good. He goes, here's how I do this eight hours a day. <laughs> yeah. And then he just continued his song. Like, I, I just yeah. love that guy. <laughs> so, that's good. But this has been a fast hour, Nick Maley. Thank you so much for joining us. I wanted to maybe close by reading the postscript from your book. And maybe... That would be enough to get you to come back and we'll talk about some of the other things that you have to say. But the name of the book is Do or Do Not, Outlook 77 Steps to an Extraordinary Life. Run out and get this on Amazon. I'll put the link on the Facebook page and um, I'm going to leave you. Do you know the postscript, your poem? Um, it's one of my poems, isn't it? Yes. Do you want me to read it? Because yeah. I was going to say you I, could read it. I, there was a number of whimsical um poems that I that I did at one time but no read it please. it's cute it says gee what it's great to be famous to enter a room to applause to see their respect and attention and receive admiration like yours but one thing that fills me with panic as nervous as nervous can be 
What in the world's going to happen if they ever find out I'm just me? (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you. And please come back and visit us again. (laughs) Yeah, I will. No problem. (laughs) All right. Take care. thank Thank you. Thank you. Bye. The Creative Backstory is a collaboration between producer Alan Fleming, associate producer Shay Zukowski, and me, Kelly Planer. Our theme song was written and performed by Dave Coyne. Just to let you know, our podcast wouldn't be remotely possible without the support of JuxtaHub, Emmaus, Pennsylvania's Arts and Innovation Center, where people from all walks of life gather, create, and grow. The views expressed by our team and our guests are not necessarily those of JuxtaHub and may or may not reflect their values. That being said, if you've been inspired by a creative person in your life or have a story about your favorite creative processes, we'd love to hear about it. Contact us at thecreativebackstory at gmail.com.